the son of righteousness from Malachi chapter 4. The passage that uh, we read this morning is the last chapter of the Old Testament. It is from the prophet Malachi who wrote some 400 years before the birth of Jesus. And he spoke about the coming of the Christ and the one who would precede his coming, also John the Baptist. It is, as we have read, it is a prophecy of judgment, but also of hope contained within that judgment. Because he told us that the Son of Righteousness will rise. The Son of Righteousness is another name for the Son of God and the difference that he would make to the world when he came. One of the things that, before I get into the message, is that I need to tackle this issue because it is part of the of the effort that we as Christians should put into reclaiming Christmas rather than just to letting Christmas go, as it were. And, uh, and one of the attacks that has come from on Christmas has actually come from, believe it or not, from Christian circles, that, uh, especially from critics who say that Christmas should not be celebrated because its origins derive from paganism. Now, it's true that in the year 274 AD, the Roman Emperor Aurelian proclaimed the pagan celebration of Sol Invictus, which uh, is in Latin, which means the unconquered sun on the 25th of December, which is round about the, the winter solstice. And if you live uh, in, particularly in the northern part of, of Europe, where the sun tends to disappear for a long time, there is, uh, when I was talking to, to a local, he says, we actually look forward to the sun again, again coming up above the horizon because uh, they go for about 30 days without the sun actually, actually coming above. They just have like a twilight for about 30 days of the year. Now, for, so therefore there, there have been many pagan celebrations as to link to the fact that the sun will rise Again, but this celebration, the Sol Invictus celebration put there by Aurelian, comes after, not before, but comes after the Christian celebrations of the same date which preceded by Christians by more than 70 years. And this is confirmed by church history. One of the early church fathers, his name was Hippolytus in 202 AD, he actually said that Christians were already celebrating Christmas through prayers and hymns to celebrate the birth of, of Jesus. Problem is that they couldn't celebrate it publicly because during those times Christians were persecuted. They were, they were killed for their faith. So December 25th appears to owe nothing whatsoever to pagan influences upon the practice of the church. So when people start throwing 
this argument to you, please be able to answer them intelligently and say, that's, that's actually an untruth. It's not verified by history. So we need to defend it from that position. Because I've heard this argument even amongst Christians. So December 25th arose entirely from the efforts of the Roman Christians determined to, to celebrate the historical birth of Jesus. Now the Christians in turn could at a later date reappropriate, obviously after what Aurelius tried to do, they would reappropriate the pagan birth of the unconquered son on the occasion of the birth of Christ. And the son of righteousness or the son of salvation, as, as it's the phrase that is used in Malachi, so rather than worshipping a pagan god, they're actually saying, no, there's actually a reference in the Old Testament to the son of righteousness that we're going to talk about this morning. So it's clear that from the earliest days there was an attempt to turn a Christian celebration into a pagan festival. Does that ring any bells? What do you think is happening today? The same, isn't it? We don't want to talk about Christ. Instead of Merry Christmas, we want to we're told to say happy holidays, removing Christ and turning it into a pagan festival. Well, we're going to continue to celebrate the birth of Christ. And uh, we need to do it boldly, we need to do it loudly, while we still have the chance. And even if it comes a day when we might be sued or jailed because of celebrating Christmas, well, so be it. It sure is a lot of brothers and sisters around the world who wish they had the, uh, the freedom that we have to celebrate Christmas. So it is a time that we should truly worship it, give thanks to God for coming into our world. So let's uh, look at our passage this morning, the sun. The S-U-N, sun. It is a great big ferocious ball of fire, isn't it? Burning at 15 million degrees. And we're about, thank to God, we're about 93 million miles away. But uh, on yesterday it felt that we were a little bit closer, wasn't it? Um, 44 degrees I think it got to. But nowhere near the 15 million degrees. And our sun is just one of the smallest stars in our Milky Way galaxy. And our Milky Way galaxy contains at least 100 billion stars. A lot of zeros. And there are another 100 billion galaxies like ours out there. How many zeros is that? And that is just what we can observe. And you think our universe is big? Our God is bigger. Just need to get that through your head. 
our God is bigger. Unfortunately, after a day like yesterday, our son gets a a bad rap in the media. Just to give you an idea of the size of the sun, the diameter of the sun is 109 times larger than the earth. And our earth is placed just at the right distance from it. Any closer we would burn, any further we would freeze to death. Any closer, what do you mean by that? Well, if, you were, if we were instead living on Venus, the temperature on Venus is 406 degrees Celsius. Right? That's pretty hot. So 40 degrees yesterday wasn't too bad. 406 degrees. Stop whinging! Uh, on the other hand, if we moved across and, and lived on Mars, I think it's about 150 degrees minus 150 degrees. So that's a little bit cooler. That's more to my liking, by the way, but the poor Africans would suffer on, on uh, Mars, I think. <laughs> but think about how delicately, delicately poised is our planet He just hangs there, all by the grace of God, perfectly placed to sustain life. And the sun regulates our weather through evaporation that rises from the oceans, forms clouds of moisture, which later drop as rain or as snow. These very clouds are moved by wind, which are caused by uneven heating of the Earth's atmosphere by the very same sun. Air moves from high pressure to low pressure and these clouds are transported across our planet to water the earth. After all, our God knew that it would be rather wasteful to have the water rise straight up and come straight down on the very spot where the water evaporates. That's why he put winds there. Amongst other things, the sun is essential in our food production through the process called photosynthesis that uh, you would have learned about in school. This is when plants combine energy from sunlight with carbon dioxide, yes, that dirty word, from the air and water from the soil to make food. In the process, the plant gives off oxygen that is essential to sustain life. God designed the sun to be the centre of the solar system where all the planets are held together in perfect coordination and harmony. It's just happened. Big bang and it's just there, right? No, it is poised, perfectly held together by God. Moses grew up in Egypt. Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, including Genesis. Moses grew up in Egypt, had the best education, but in Egypt they worshipped the sun and the moon as gods. So when he wrote Genesis, he, he didn't even give the decency to call them the sun and the moon. He simply called them the big light and the little light. He was making a statement. 
and they were given a task as light bearers because light was before even the creation of the sun itself. So why worship the sun when we are called to worship the one who made it in the first place? God made light. God made the sun to bear the light. And Paul told the Colossians, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Colossians 1.17, one of the great statements in Scripture. In him it all holds together. It just sort of floats in the air at perfect distance, in perfect harmony in him. That's the sun. Then we look at that word righteousness. Righteousness, of course, is a big word in Scripture. It is God's perfect and holy standard that he has set. Everything is therefore judged according to this perfect standard. In Jesus, righteousness is personified. And Malachi was announcing the day when the Lord of righteousness will be in full view just like the shining sun in all its brightness, in all its blessedness. Of course, not everybody was going to be happy about this because people tend to make up their own rules. They want to make up their own rules, just like in the book of Judges. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. That's sort of the way we are living today, isn't it? We, we want to define what is right and what is wrong. No, that's God's prerogative. And this is the verdict, John three nineteen to 21. This is the verdict, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. He didn't come just to display his brightness, to shine the light into our darkness. He came for something quite extraordinary, if that wasn't enough. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, For our sake, that's you and me. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became sin. You could almost say Jesus became darkness. And I suppose this is symbolised in the, in the three hours at his crucifixion, isn't it? When God looked at his son on the cross, it was dark. He saw all the heinous, corrupt, deceptive, evil activity that man had racked up and it was all heaped upon the perfect, holy son of God the Lamb of God, 
takes the sin of the world. He, in turn, conquered death in his resurrection. And through an act of amazing grace, he swapped his perfect, unblemished righteousness for our evil sins. But the only ones who are able to reap the benefits of his forgiveness are those, as Malachi verse 2 tells us, are those who revere my name, those who revere his name. And of course, that's where the problem lies, isn't it? That people do not want to revere his name. Hope. Verse 2 says, the sun of righteousness will rise. One of the things that occurs each and every day with incredible precision and regularity is the rising of the sun. And uh, we take it for granted, don't we? And when someone is going through a difficult time, we try to offer some hope by saying things like, tomorrow is a new day. Or, don't worry, the sun will rise again tomorrow. What we are trying to do is encourage them to keep going, to not give up, because tomorrow is indeed a new day, a chance for a new start. My friends, one of the essential elements in our human existence is hope, the need for hope. We cannot live without it. You and I have come across people who have lost all hope and it's pretty depressing. It's this just overwhelmed with darkness and it's just like this darkness is trying to suck you in, like, like it's, it's contagious. And you go away from visiting them or seeing them and say, man, that was heavy. It's what it's like to live without hope. Do we have hope? I pick up the newspapers and mainstream media and it thrives on negativity. This die, that this is happening, it's the end of the world. Every morning it's the end of the world. My goodness. It's just like they're trying to sap the life out of you. I think one of my one of my New Year resolutions will be to look less at the uh, the news and maybe start reading more of God's Word because uh, it's pretty depressing stuff out there. And and, and trust me, I I just spent time in Myanmar for three or four weeks with with Ted and, and Jim and Chris, and they don't they don't seem to be absorbed with so much negativity as we are here in the West. Now you see the joy in their faces in, in, when they come together in church. They're actually smiling and it's, it's a joy for them to come together. When you're teaching the students in the colleges, they actually appreciate, they, they, they love hearing from God's Word. They don't take this stuff for granted. They have a very small amount 
the stuff that you and I enjoy each and every day and yet truly thankful. And yet us with so much, what happened? On the wall of a museum of the concentration camp in Dachau is a large and moving photograph of, uh, of a mother. It was taken during the, the times of the, uh, the gas chambers, the concentration camps in Second World War. And there is a, there's a moving picture of a mother and her little girl standing in line of a gas chamber. A mother and a little girl. The child who is walking in front of her mother does, does not know where she is going. And the mother who walks behind does know but is helpless to stop the tragedy. And in her helplessness, she performs the only act of love left to her. She places her hands above her child's eyes so she will at least not see the horror come. And when people go into the museum, they, they don't hurry past this photo. They pause. They think of the role of a parent to a child where you're preparing them for life. You, you, you're hoping for the best, but sometimes you also, unfortunately in our world, we need to prepare them for the worst. They, you, you feel, you, you, you're consumed by this pain. And deep inside, as people walk past, they're saying, oh God, don't let, don't let that be all that there is. There has to be more. There has to be more. At the end of the Old Testament... from the reading of that last chapter to the beginning in Matthew chapter 1, there was a silence of 400 years. 400 years. And with the passing of time, hope tends to die down. But the way things are are the way things will always be. Just accept it. But the Jews continued with this hopeful anticipation that the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel, would come to deliver them from their oppression. They continue to hope and to believe in the promises of God that he will send his Messiah to set things right. And yes, they got that part right, that the Messiah would come, that they did have the hope in the midst of their despair but they didn't grasp, they didn't understand the manner, the significance of all that he would accomplish. Passages like Isaiah 53 just seem too hard to accept. And today most in our world have yet to understand the significance. For those of us who revere Christ will know that this is not all there is. And this is the reason he came into this world of sin, to give us hope. But it also, in this passage, 
Malachi talks about, it says, will come with healing in its wings, healing in its wings in verse 2. Now on the subject of healing from the sun, we know that while the sun, obviously we need to be very careful, the sun can cause cancer, it is also essential for our healing. One example obviously is, is vitamin D which forms in the skin when it is exposed to sunlight. We need vitamin D to maintain good health, to keep strong bones and muscles healthy, essential. And, and the human body is, is, is marvellous. It, it's, it's so wonderful in so many ways. But one of the great traits is this remarkable ability, the body to heal itself. It's very different to my car. because my car doesn't have the ability to fix itself. It will not repair itself, despite the fact of the many things that I might say to it. Oh, you, you, you naughty car, <laughs> why won't you start? Right? You, you, those are the words that you use to car, right? especially in winter. <laughs> oh, there's a hole in the tyre. It's flat. <sighs> Come, be, repair yourself. It's not going to happen, is it? No? Your car too? I thought it was just mine. But you see, our bodies, designed by God, has specific powerful, fierce, fierce-fighting soldier-like cells that go about clotting blood, fighting intruders, uh, cells that destroy viruses and cancers so that we are not overcome by them. But we also know that ever since the fall, our bodies have been cursed with decay and yes, we're all subject to fading glory. We will eventually die. There was a time when John the Baptist and uh, Malachi calls him Elijah. John the Baptist started having doubts that Jesus was the one, despite the fact that he introduced him and baptised him. And Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised and the good news is preached to the poor. All signs of the kingdom of God was breaking in, bringing hope, bringing healing swings. But Jesus did not just come to bring physical, physical healing, which is only temporary, but more importantly, spiritual, which is permanent. Therefore, the need to preach the good news to the poor. Because you can be healed and you will eventually die, 
They, we all need spiritual healing because eternity is a very long time. On one occasion, they brought a paralysed man on a stretcher. He healed him by declaring, your sins are forgiven. He didn't just heal him, he went straight to step two. A complete package. He gave him much more than he ever asked for. And Isaiah tells us that by his stripes we are healed. The sun of righteousness will rise to bring the healing of all the hurts and the wounds which the power of darkness has inflicted on us. And at Christmas we celebrate the time when God decided to intrude upon the weak and the vulnerable. That is you and me. And while we're on the outside, we might appear to strut through life with confidence and self-sufficiency. You know the strut, the John Travolta strut, you know? Yeah? Will? How long do you keep that strut going for? Hey? Eh? Some of you who are 70 or 80 plus, how's the strut going? (laughs) Exactly. Eventually our confidence and self-sufficiency give way and, and many live lives of quiet desperation, unfortunately. The sooner we admit our need and dependence of God, He can start working on us. That healing process begins and gives us hope. And then it says in verse 2, it's Christ who will bring us release. And you will go out and you will leap like calves released from the stall. I don't know if you've ever seen this in action, but it is quite a sight. You've got to go out to the bush to, to look at this and maybe spend some time in a farm. There is this, this burst of energy, a feeling of euphoria, like a loaded spring that, that the animal appears to experience when it is set free from the stall. Spurgeon described it like this. He says, The calf in the stall is shut up, tied up with a halter at night. But when the sun rises, the calf goes forth to the pasture. The young bullock is set free, so the child of God may be in bondage. The recollection of past sins and present unbelief may halter him and keep him in the stall. But when the Lord reveals himself, he is set free. Of course, sinful man seeks many different ways to find release. Mostly through distraction, through pleasure, through drugs. Ironically, the more he tries, the deeper the hole he digs for himself and the further entrenched he becomes in his ways. Now, this message of release was proclaimed by Jesus at the start of his ministry when he proclaimed, uh, he got up and he preached in his hometown synagogue in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 19. And he said this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me 
because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Freedom for the prisoners. And recovery of sight for the blind to release, there's that word again, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. This, this, this leaping for joy refers to all who have believed Christ as Lord, to those who have accepted his sacrifice, the forgiveness of sins. You are released from chains. That burden is lifted off you. You have been freed by Christ, no longer slaves to sin, but righteousness. And John said, in our series in John, we looked at this verse, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And then we have the Apostle Paul who wrote to the Romans. This was his condition. Contrast with another one, Romans seven twenty four to 25. What, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death, he says. And then, thanks be to God who delivers me, delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The deliverance. And this is the message, isn't it, that the world needs to hear. In conclusion, through Jesus, God has come to address our sinful condition that haunts all of us, all of mankind. And God's message of judgment on sin is an essential part of the good news because it is only when we see the contrast between His holiness and our sinfulness that we grasp, that we understand our need for pardon and for grace. We worship Him because He is God and we offer eternal praise to Him because He took the judgment on himself when he didn't have to. And we celebrate Christmas as an act of God's grace to rejoice with the angels and the shepherds with the tidings of great joy. But the mercy of God crossed the gulf that existed and came to save us through the gift of his Son. And Our Christmas season, every Christmas season is more meaningful when we associate it with the offer of pardon that is extended to each of us who truly worship the Lord both at the manger and worship the Lord at the cross. That's the journey from the manger to the cross. We delight in both. We rejoice in both. And this is why... We need to shout it out. In fact, we need to, as the song says, we need to go and tell it on the mountains. Amen. So let us sing.